Hey everybody, welcome to Women Who Code Radio. I am super excited. I have a member of the US Digital Service, uh, which many of you may not have ever heard of. Please, Claire, introduce yourself and what do you do at USDS? Uh, hi, I'm Claire Bailey. I am the Director of Product at the United States Digital Service. What do I do? That's a fun question. You so, probably do a lot of meetings if you're a director. I, that is true. I have lots of meetings. Um, it really varies. So this is a question I get a lot whenever I'm doing interviews or talking to people at conferences. I am one of the people on our HQ leadership team and I run the product community of practice, which means I'm responsible for about 40 people who are a variety of kind of your classic product manager all the way to our government experts and our policy experts are all kind of lumped under me in this. And I, I have an engineering background. I have a product management background before this. And so the way I go about viewing it is that my community is both my product and my users. And so my job is to support them and get them to be able to do their job as best they can, which means a lot of one-on-ones, uh, a lot of dealing with people's feelings, of course, as any manager, as any good manager does. And then a lot of mm, stuff around our hiring pipeline as well. I do a lot of recruiting, a lot of interviews, bringing people in to uh, join the club, so to speak. Um, one of my favorite parts of my job is getting to go out and interact with our people at all the different offices. So I am one of the few positions at USDS that gets to have insight into kind of all the projects that are going on, of which there are many at any given point in time. And so a day spent out at the DHS office, at the VA office, is one of my favorite times here at this job. Excellent. Well, we're going to dig more into that in a bit. But first, let's roll things back. You've had a long, long path within the tech industry, but let's, let's go all the way back. And what was your first job? Oh, boy. Um, I know, like, you know, McDonald's at high school or the local movie yeah, theater, yeah. delivering papers, even that's kind of a dying art. <laughs> I feel like I did have a kind of half entrepreneurial, entre, entrepreneurial, that's a hard word entrepreneurial spirit as a kid. Uh, I tried to set up a Pokemon card trading and selling business at one point, which did not work. But my first actual paid job was just working the coffee shop at a cafe. A friend's nice. dad had a, um, a art studio slash shop and it needed to operate at least one day a week to be counted as a business. And so uh, his son was a friend of mine and me and him would just go out on Saturdays and Sundays and spin espresso so that we could keep it going as an art studio. It was very chill, but very fun for a 14 year old. And did you learn how to do the fancy foam art? No, I'm still very bad at that. <laughs> Alas, were you, were you into uh, science and math and those types of things when you were in school? Oh yeah. As far back as I can remember, I've been a STEM kid really. I was very into, I mean, I was very into making things as kind of a young, young kid, right? And then as soon like as I got to make up, things. Yeah, Legos, oh my God, super, super into Legos. Uh, dirt, I was really into making things with dirt too. I would I go out this. and uh, <laughs> to my parents' chagrin, dig a lot of like holes in the backyard and connect them with tunnels and then put water in them and have it go through in various paths. Very, very early aquatics engineer, let's go with that. <laughs> As old as as soon as I was old enough to take math in school, though, I was really, really into it. I was in like a lot of the advanced classes, a lot of the, you know, nerdy extracurriculars, stuff like that. Um, definitely more math and logic than the science side of things. I, I like physics, but I hated chemistry and biology because there was so much memorization involved. And I am terrible at that side of things. So you must really love computers then. That's a big thing. Yeah, it's true. It's true. 
it started that started pretty early. Uh, my first <laughs> my first two examples programming were with Neopets, which I've talked to a lot of people of programmers in my generation, and there are quite a lot of us that learned about programming first from the Neopets tutorials of the background of your store. So that's that's an interesting element that links us together. You know, and I have, I've heard that also, and people say we should just look at Neopets as a programming tutorial, and I, I haven't never I, that was after my time, so I should go back and look at that. <laughs> yeah, it's just HTML and CSS, but it's the first time I really considered that you could kind of control a computer's behavior in that way. And the other one was my TI-83 calculator and programming that. Wow, you actually programmed a TI. Yes, the um, the science teachers hadn't realized that you could use it to cheat on tests. So there was a little bit of an inside business around putting in all of the equations and stuff that you would need into your calculator and then sharing it with the other kids to get you know some social bonding there. I don't know. I would consider that more efficiency than cheating. <laughs> I mean, I'm not really. I don't know if they would, but I agree with you. <laughs> All right, so you went off to college. Where did you go to school? MIT. Uh, of course you did. And <laughs> anybody who likes playing with dirt and uh, and programming their TI is going to end up in MIT. And, yeah, and you did computer science, computer engineering? I did, uh, yeah. So it's a combined degree at uh, MIT. It's computer science and electrical engineering. I did a focus on computer science. Uh, I minored in gender studies and one of the, I've met exactly one other person my entire career that has that same combination of major and minor. So that was fun. Oh, you know what? I did know that. I um, When I talked to Kara Sprague in a previous episode, she also mentioned that it was an electric, it was an EECS combination. Mm -hmm. I, I somehow mm -hmm. missed that that was the standard. And then women's studies. Yeah. One could call you a Renaissance woman <laughs> in a way. <laughs> and how far in college did you go? Just bachelor's. Just bachelor's? Yeah. Um, it took me about five and a half years to finish my undergrad, and by the time I got that completed, I was pretty ready to be done. I, I hear you, and and I don't think that's unusual. When I went to UC Santa Cruz, there was a t-shirt you could buy in the bookstore that said, UC Santa Cruz, five or six of the best years of your life. So I think that's <laughs> been a truism for a long time. Yes, I know quite a few people who've been to UC Santa Cruz, and that, yeah. Fighting bananas legs for life. Um, so you got out of MIT and you went off and got a job. Where did you work? So I went out to San Francisco afterwards. Um, I was very ready to be done with college, as I said. And so I knew I wanted to live in San Francisco because uh, it wasn't going to be hard to find a job. And I'd heard so much and I wanted to experience it. But I didn't have a job yet. So the day after I completed the requirements for my bachelor's degree, I threw everything I owned in an RV and I started driving across the country to San Francisco. And I moved in with some relatives for a while. The first job I had was a programming job. It was a web development shop at a little startup that was kind of a creative consultancy for social good type stuff. Oh, nice. It, yeah, it, it did not last long. Uh, often true for such things. Correct, correct. But that was, that was kind of just my first gig. So I knew, obviously I love programming. I still love programming on the occasions that I do it. But for my first real programming job, which was my first internship after freshman year of college, I realized that I kind of hated it doing it for eight hours a day. Did not like being paid to do it straight for that long. And so I started looking for other jobs, other career opportunities where I could get more human interaction in my day to day. There are now I know there are some programming opportunities and jobs where that that is there, but it was not in any of the ones that I had experienced by that point. So I started just looking around. My second job out of college was actually in business intelligence for a media company. 
I always love data. That's been a big kind of favorite area of mine in terms of computer science. And so this was an opportunity both to nerd out on data and run SQL queries and to deal with some of the um, art interests of mine in terms of making graphs and making displays. And it involved a lot of public speaking because I did at least one or two presentations every week to the director level of the company in terms of the previous week's sales and stuff like that. That was very fun. Um, and as you progress, so how long were you there? at doing the business intelligence? Yeah, so I, I did that job for also about a year. Um, and then I went to Google after that and that was about four years. So that's my full six year, God, seven year now. I've been at USDS for so long. Yeah, seven years out of college now. I'm seven sorry. years out of college and you're already a director. Yeah, I'm pretty happy about that. Precocious. <laughs> um, and what did you do at Google? I did many things at Google. Uh, so I worked in developer relations. Are you familiar with that mm -hmm. department? Yep. Yeah. I did many things. The last two and a half years, I was project lead for the Google Developer Code Labs, which are kind of step-by-step -step tutorials that teach someone how to do a thing with some of the Google development platforms by having them actually do the thing. Uh, learn mm -hmm. by doing was our motto, so to speak. Yeah, that's actually a really slick system. I'm, I've, I have used it myself. Well, thank you very much. Have you published something on it? Not yet. I, I hope to. You should. <laughs> our publishing platform, as long as it's the same thing that it was when I left, is very slick. It's all, you write it in Google Docs and just publishes automatically. It's a good thing. And along the way, have there been people that have acted as mentors or other form of encouragement that have helped you? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I do not think I would have been able to get very far without at least some form of encouragement. Um, now I have a lot of people I know and like in the industry and have can, you know, built your families of choice around you. But especially early on, this was a very lonely path. I remember my first person that I, I guess I would call a mentor was actually my high school programming teacher. Mm -hmm. And this was, um, I went to a, a boarding math and science academy, state funded, so not posh like everybody seems to think when I say that. And they had a programming class. And so my first formal programming education was uh, programming one there. And it was a mix of juniors and seniors. And there were exactly two juniors in that class, one of which was me. And out of 30 students, there was exactly one woman. And these are the parts of the stories where, in hindsight, everything could have gone terribly wrong, right? Like looking back, I'm like, that could have been a turning point in my career. That could have been when I decided that this was going to be miserable and I don't like it because everybody here hates me. But my teacher just really went out of his way to not just encourage me, but like when I did well, I knew about it. And I am very good at programming or was when I was in practice. Um, and so there was kind of a lot of good things to bring up, a lot of times for encouragement. Um, I actually ended up being captain of our programming team, uh, won a bunch of contests that way, still very proud of that. But I, so I, I wouldn't have kind of gone on into it as enthusiastic as I did, had it not been for that high school teacher who, yeah, just kind of took it upon himself to make sure I felt encouraged and included um, and successful. And it's an interesting tidbit I found out years later is that he's gay. And it wasn't known at the time. This was in Arkansas. So it's not like that was a great thing to be known for. And always thought that it might have been a kind of, not outcast is the word, but like individuals looking out for other different individuals. You know? Sure the different folks who look out for each other and make sure that they're good and supported and keep on going through. Were you out in high school? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, Even I mean, in Arkansas. I, I, oh, yeah. Uh, I was lucky. My, my family is very 
my family's very liberal, despite the fact that I grew up in Arkansas. I was identifying as queer and out as such pretty much from the day puberty hit me. It was not subtle. Uh, <laughs> I, I was very lucky to have a family in a community that, if, if not always encouraging, at the very least tolerated me. So that is not an area of my life where I've had to um, be repressed or, or struggle to come out with things, thankfully. Well, and it's and it's interesting, and I've talked about this with many other people, where tech in particular as an industry um, has probably had one of the strongest um, uh, representations for employer resource groups and other types of things and, uh, and employing uh, what we call the alternate communities, for, for lack of a better description. Um, you know, I, I, when I was in college in the late 80s, early 90s, Apple Lambda, um, which was a LGBT employee resource group, was already uh, strongly established as, as one example. Of course, um, at Google, there's Gaglers, uh, mm-hmm. who, and I think, you know, hundreds of representatives across the country at Pride every year. I worked at Pixar Studios and, and the group there was called Pixmos. And so it's it's definitely something that I think has been perhaps from a business perspective, kind of a saving grace as an industry uh, for people in those communities, much as far as being able to be out successfully, you know, access to domestic partner support for healthcare, for example, uh, has been something that well preceded um, any kind of state or federal law in support of such. So has that been sort of your experience as well in that vein? I mean, I come from a generation other than Arkansas, which certainly has its own issues as a state. Um, so there are many uh, positive things to be said for it as well. I haven't had any trouble. And I recognize that that's due to the hard work and suffering of a lot of people who came before me. Um, but it's certainly something that I appreciate about the tech industry very much, both for the support and recognition of the community and allowing it to be who you are and come together, and for allowing me to wear whatever the hell I want to work and dye my hair in crazy colors with no buddy complaining about it. <laughs> Amen to hair color. <laughs> So now we're here at U.S. Digital Service. What motivated you to join? Well, uh, so I'd actually decided to quit Google first before I decided to take this job. I'd been at Google for four years, and I'd kind of got tired of selling out, to be honest. <laughs> I It was not necessarily what I had attended when I took the job, but I had had enough of um, making a lot of money and flying around the world and living the glamorous Silicon Valley life and was ready to go back to something that I felt was helping people a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what I wanted more than that, but I was actually at the Lesbians Who Tech Conference in San Francisco. And I'd heard about USDS before, but they had a booth there. I remember I was just going through the tech fair looking for swag, as you do when you're gainfully employed at a tech conference. As one does, absolutely. Need those exactly. t-shirts and socks. Exactly. I don't know how else I'm going to clothe myself. I came up to the USDS booth there and... I was like, oh, I remember these people. I was to go, and it was a very plain booth, right? Next to, you know, some of the big data companies or the tech startups about some driving cars, mumble, mumble. And it was just a booth with a bunch of stickers on it and one person standing behind it. And I went up and talked to them and got the spiel. And I was walking away from the booth. And I remember thinking to myself, what is this weird, warm, energetic feeling I'm having? I think I feel inspired about a work thing. It's been a while since that's happened. Uh, and then I spent about a month debating whether or not I could actually move to DC. Spoiler alert, I did. And here I am. So you're based in DC now? Uh, yeah, uh, all people who join USDS are required to relocate to DC. Gotcha. Um, that's interesting. There's another uh, organization within that's government. It's I think it's called F18. Mm-hmm. 
18F, yeah. 18F, 18F, my bad. Um, and everyone that I know who's affiliated with 18F works from their house. Um, I don't know mm -hmm. if that's standard for everyone, but that's uh, but it's certainly a very different experience. What are the, what's the difference between USDS and, and 18F? Very good question. Uh, yeah, so 18F is remote first, like not just remote optional, but even the people who are in DC kind of operate as if they were remote. There's not really a central office from anywhere. We do require people to come here. It means that we are a little bit, I think we're smaller, uh, but one of our core values is go where the work is. And this has some you know, metaphorical meanings and then also some literal meanings. One of the strengths of our particular brand is we literally go and sit with our government partners. Like I said in the beginning, one of my favorite parts of my week is going to spend a day at the DHS office, at the VA office, um, you know, at CMS up in Baltimore. And that human face-to-face -face back and forth really kind of gives you something extra to the work, especially when things are going very fast-paced, which is not to say I love 18F. I'm a big fan. I think they do great work. Um, it's just a little bit of a different style. And I have always been a fan of the inhuman, of the in-person connections. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a big difference in the type of projects between the digital service and 18F? A little bit. There are some that overlap. One of the things that we are able to do that they're not due to kind of the way their like money and structure is generated is the firefighting element of USDS. And this is the best example of this one is our founding story and the one that made the time cover. So it's the one we always go back to and that is healthcare.gov. Yes, I was actually going to bring that up. So but yes. perfect, please tell the story. <laughs> there we go. Yes, so when healthcare.gov was going to launch and it was going to be all of Obamacare was kind of dependent on this thing working because you can't sign up for a program, it's not gonna succeed. And that website, it just didn't work. Like they were getting close to launch and it just did not work for a wide variety of reasons. So some people from Obama's tech team from the campaign, from early days of the White House, basically created a, a tech strike team and came to DC on site, um, working really, really long days for a very short period of time to rebuild healthcare.gov and get it working so that on the day that Obamacare was supposed to launch, it would actually work and not just kind of fall into oblivion because the government can't do technology. Don't and if that. I... And if I recall correctly, um, Google actually donated some site reliability engineers to help with that project. Uh, Mickey Dickerson is a name that that comes up quite a bit um, as part of that process. Yes, yes, Mikey Dickerson, our first administrator. There's actually an oil painting of him in the room right next to the one I'm sitting in. It You're was kidding. a joke. It was very funny. He would hate if I didn't qualify that. <laughs> oil painting of Mikey Dickerson. Um, and so there's another great example of, you know, tech and government working for the betterment, uh, as opposed to all of the recent news about how it's horrible and evil. Um, I suppose it's both things when it, when you, when yeah. it comes right down to it. Well, there are, we have a lot of good examples, right? We wouldn't be able to recruit people if we didn't have good stories. One of the ones that we've got going on right now is our team. Um, we're, we're not still in at healthcare.gov. We kind of came in and fought that fire and left them to do their thing, but we're still involved in a lot of active healthcare efforts. And so we have a fairly significant team over at the Medicare Center, and they are trying to fix Medicare for 58 million Americans. It is a giant system that's running on several million lines of COBOL on an old mainframe. And oh I never. Oh, God. Thought, yeah. 
uh, there are a couple words in there that I never thought I would use seriously in my career. And now here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Has that been the biggest surprise for you is, is some of the, the technology that's still in play or if? That's a good question. Um, I think some of that I did expect, right? It's, they don't give you specifics when they give you the pitch, but you know, going, going to a Silicon Valley conference and talking about COBOL and mainframes is a good attention getting recruitment tactic. So we definitely try to trot that one out. <laughs> I think one of the biggest surprises to me was just kind of the different ways you go about getting things done. Like I had to, I had to relearn how to argue and how to make persuasive presentations here in Silicon Valley in all of my previous career. Uh, you could talk about, go through um, the logical facts and ROI and users. And even if it wasn't, you know, DevRel at Google does not have income, so to speak, right? They don't bring in any right. money for the company, but you can still trace it back to some metrics in the end and have a pretty clear path. And when you work inside the government, everything is so much more complicated. And the reason things are hard are never what you would expect. What's an example? So I'm trying to think of a good one that I can say on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no state secrets, please. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, to the FBI agent who's listening to this call, I promise everything will be fine. So we're called in to fix a problem. And someone's like, our website's bad. We're running on a mainframe, though they don't usually say that one in particular. We come in and so many times the issue is not the core issue is not that technology. It's much more about users and them not really having a presence in the actual product uh, or the product not really being focused on the right users. So VA.gov is one of our most recent launches. It's now this really incredibly easy to navigate site that's got a bunch of functions on it that are easy to find things that are the most common things people need to find when they try to go to VA.gov. The old version of VA.gov was basically designed for VA employees and it wasn't about the people who are going to try to find VA services. So we, I believe we were called in there to examine the website from a text point of view. And then we get in and we're like, actually, it's actually a design problem. Yeah. And then once you're like, cool, let's like talk to some users, figure out what they're using it for, redesign this thing. Then you start getting caught in all these interesting intricacies of government, like, let's say a couple of the regulations that sometimes prevent you from talking to users. Um, the Paperwork Reduction Act comes up here in interesting and fun ways. And so both trying to get around regulations to let us talk to users, trying to convince stakeholders that talking to users is a good idea. Uh, so, so far before you get to actually fixing the technology. Right. So when in, in private sector, we worry about things like PCI or PII and GDPR. You you have that on steroids, those types okay. of challenges. Yes. Yeah, we got Congress down the street just in case watching over us. <laughs> so, you know, here's something that actually, you know, um, surprised me. Like the first time I was at Lesbian Zoo Tech and I saw uh, USDS, I was like, wow, I wouldn't have expected to see a government agency at a conference like this. Um, and yet every year there you are, uh, which is amazing. Um, what type of outreach beyond Lesbian Zoo Tech does USDS do? And do you feel that uh, because of that amount of outreach that maybe you, the representation you have in the organization is maybe better than average when you compare it against 
you know, other uh, other private sector set of companies. Like, you know, you look at the quotas, for example, I think it's women in technical roles in high tech industry on average is depending on where you look between 16 and 20 percent um, mm -hmm. black African-American, I think in technical roles is like one percent. Uh, and that's across the board. And then black or la Latino uh, women is, you know, not even measurable uh, in some way. So how does USDS compare? Far beyond it just being like the good and right thing to do to try to get better representation um, than what you see in a lot of places here. It's also just important for us to actually, the people building the tools should represent the people using the tools. And a lot of our tools have a user base that's literally all of America. So our demographics, don't match what America is, but they they are in fact still quite a lot better um, than many other tech companies. We just released our most recent diversity report. Actually, you can find it on our website in the footer. Uh, I mean, our our leadership team is currently fifty percent female. Um, we don't don't believe we have any kind of. Uh, I always want to throw in a third category of like female, male, and other of various kinds, but we don't have anybody who identifies with that. So I'll leave that one out for now. Um, yes, it's a very active thing for our recruiting team. We just had some people who got back from Afrotech. Uh -huh. um, so I don't know what the numbers are overall. We are 25% of minorities in leadership and about 50% female overall. It varies depending on your um, your community area in terms of that, in terms of like what, what function those people actually serve. But it's a very active endeavor of our talent team. Excellent. So there, so you should expect to see USDS represented at a variety of, of uh, community events. So you were at, yeah. Yeah, I know, yeah, we do Afrotech, Lesbian Sioux Tech, um, Girl Geek X as well. And then I think uh, Latinx Techies is one of our new ones. Oh, and Grace Hopper every year, of course. Of course, <laughs> everybody does Grace Hopper. It's true, I, I, I went five years in a row and then I stopped when it got above 12,000 people because it is just too much for me. But I'm already in tech, so maybe I'm not the audience that needs to go to that. <laughs> sure, well, maybe you know, you'll be up on stage doing a keynote. You're not the first person to sell that to me. <laughs> hey, I, I would pay to see that. So, all right, we've we've talked a little bit about your path. Um, what what do you think is the thing that you would say first and foremost for someone like why would you come work at the digital service to someone who's not already there? If you want to make an impact, like one of the lines that got me at that conference a year and a half ago was this will be the most rewarding and the most frustrating job that you will ever have. And so far, I've definitely found that to be true. <laughs> so it's it's a lot harder to get things done here in government for many of the reasons I've mentioned already and many more that I haven't gone into yet. But the potential for impact is insane. Um, one of the differences as a product person now, right? I was, I was product lead back at Google and I'm director of product here. Who you have to think about is your user base is so dramatically different than, uh, than private sector. You know, in Silicon Valley, if you go into pitch to a VC firm and they ask you who your target audience is and you say literally every single person in America, they will laugh you out of that room and rightfully so. Sure. But here, some of the products we build, that's actually the user base. And right. that is very different. Uh, it requires a lot of different ways of thinking, a lot of more, um, a lot more nuance and detail, uh, a lot more heartbreak moments, because there's always going to be someone who has to use your product that you didn't think about and they can't do it. And now they couldn't apply for that job or get that benefit or whatever. Um, 
yeah, it's 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 a lot of heartbreak, but also, you know, the things that we do every day are literally making people's lives better. And I know tech companies making the world a better place was forever turned into a joke by season one of Silicon Valley, but still true here. That's amazing. You know, one of the challenges that, you know, and you bring up a good point. <clears throat> one of the challenges I was reading about, uh, particularly in rural areas, there are all these services where it's like you have to have a smartphone um, or access to a laptop in order to take advantage of it because the assumption is that, of course, now everyone is going to have one of those. And uh, But there is a, a, a very strong percentage of the population that doesn't. You know, and it's like, well, what, how do you, how do you react to that? You can't, you know, I, I can't imagine, um, especially now, you know, Congress saying, okay, well, we're going to make sure that every person in America has got a, a smartphone. I just don't see yeah. that happening. But, you know, one could imagine like, you know, you can get uh, kiosks, for example, or some other mechanism that would allow for access. But then how many of those would you have to scale, you know, how big of a program would have to scale for that? I know that these are, you know, now I'm feeling mm -hmm. kind of interested in solving this problem. There we go. USDS.gov slash apply. Okay. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Uh, there we go, USDS.gov, that, that magical uh, domain name slash apply for any of, of you listeners who are interested in considering a, uh, a job at the U.S. Digital Service or attend one of a number of conferences where that little booth and the fun little logo, I love the logo, I have the sticker, um, you look for them, fun group of folks. I always look forward to saying hello. Um, thank you, Claire, for sharing some time with us. You uh, have a very interesting story, and uh, I feel a little bit better knowing that my tax dollars are going to you and your team. <laughs> my pleasure. I appreciate hearing that, Sarah. You've been listening to Women Who Code Radio. For more information about today's episode or to ask questions or submit ideas for future topics, check out our show notes at womenwhocoderadio.blogspot.com. To learn more about Women Who Code, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, go to the main website, womenwhocode.org, where you can follow them on Twitter at Women Who Code. I'm Tara Hernandez at Tequila Rista on Twitter, and thanks for listening.